Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. It's always a, a really unenviable position to have to follow up children and give a, a, a dry grown-up talk. But uh, man, I, I'll tell you, I was watching this morning, and God used those children to really um, lift my spirits and to remind me what my heart should be and needs to be more like every day. And I also saw a couple kids who are going to grow up and be the future leaders of our drama ministry. It's funny how some kids are just born with stage presence and panache. I don't know where it comes from, but it's from the Lord, I think. And this morning, I, um, I want to, this is essentially like our Christmas Sunday. This Christmas Eve, Eve, we're going to have a very special service and, and a few movements. And I think it's going to be really beautiful. We're going to have a, a chance to sing together as families. Um, and if you've never been to our sister church, ICC's new facility up in Wheeling, it's a really beautiful room to have a worship service in. I think you will really, really enjoy the experience of worshiping together there. So I want to encourage each of you, uh, make plans to join us on Friday night. If you have kids and you're going to need child care during the service, we would ask that you would just fill out that link, that form that was sent out, so make, we can make sure that we are adequately staffed to watch over the kids during that service. I think it's going to be a beautiful service. And then Saturday and Sunday, we don't have anything from Harvest for you. We encourage you to get some rest, be with family. And if there's a church, uh, a friend of yours or family members you've always wanted a chance to visit, this is your chance. If they're doing a Sunday morning service, go and check that out and celebrate and worship with the, the congregation of a friend or family members. This morning, uh, the, the message I'd like to bring to you is really, it's a simple title, it's just Jesus our Savior. Jesus, our Savior. There's a lot of things you can say at Christmas time. Um, a lot of things which are on our minds as we go through this Christmas season. And more than just what we're going through, there's a lot that we can say about Jesus himself at Christmas time. But this morning, I want to focus on what I think is the most important and simplest thing that can be said about who Jesus is. And what he came to do. This is a time of year when Christians, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And I always found it interesting that when there's somebody we admire, someone we want to celebrate, and we're trying to figure out what holiday to make, we usually designate their birthday as the holiday. In fact, I think that's kind of curious to me because most people that we want to celebrate become people we admire because they did something in their life that was admirable and I always wonder why we don't celebrate the day somebody signed a peace treaty or the day someone became president or the day they made their great speech. Why their birthday? Why is that the day we commemorate? And, and I think it's because what we're trying to say is this person is someone so valued by us, somebody who has made such an important contribution to our lives and to our society, we can't limit their life to one act or one achievement that we celebrate what we're really saying is we celebrate the day they were born, the day that they came into the earth. It's our way of saying we celebrate the whole of their life as a gift to us. 
I think that's a beautiful gesture to say, we don't celebrate the day you became useful to us. We don't celebrate the day you did something that benefited us, but we celebrate the day that God brought you into the world to be part of the human race. The day your mother brought you into the world in a hospital somewhere or in a barn or wherever it was, and you joined the rest of us, and you grew up, and you became a gift to the whole of the human race. I think that's the spirit in which we have to celebrate Jesus. I I know that we have nativity scenes and we make much of the baby Jesus wrapped in a manger, but I love this picture, and I don't know if you could see it on the slide very well, but there's a shadow of a cross hanging across the manger reminding us that this baby was born just like everybody else on earth was born, but very differently that from the first day of his arrival, there was a purpose to his life that wasn't so bright and happy for him in the sense that he was sentenced to death from his birth for our sakes. And that his whole life, not just his birth and the star and the miracles and the angels, but his whole life was for us a real gift. Now, we generally consider Christmas a happy holiday and we... um, refer a lot to good news, glad tidings, and we should do that. But I want to remind you that for at least one man, the news of Jesus' imminent birth was not such good news. I love this painting by Rembrandt. Uh, and Let me read the passage first with you, and then we'll, we'll look at this, this text. Matthew 1, 18 to 21, here's what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I love this painting by Rembrandt. Um, and I, I like, you know, he does capture Mary. Is there any way we can show maybe this, this light off there? That's great. Mary is sitting off looking very tired and pregnant and overwhelmed by what she just discovered about herself. Not every woman in the world is impregnated by the God of the universe. And so she's over there kind of looking like, whoa, Joseph, I got my own drama going on. But look at Joseph. And he's not, that's not sleepy. That's just, this is Joseph saying, man, I, I love this girl. We're promised to be married but I don't recall a time where we did the thing that you do to make babies. And yet she has a baby. And I don't think most men in that situation, the first place they go is, I wonder if God impregnated her. I don't think that's the place most men would first think, oh, that must be it. And so he's doing the math, and he's really discouraged because he wanted this marriage. He loved her. But this is going to bring a lot of shame on everybody. It's going to be a source of scandal. And really, there was an element of unrighteousness presumed here, which was difficult for Joseph to deal with. And I don't know if I could have blamed him for nullifying this relationship on those terms. In fact, most 
Jewish leaders would have said that would have been the righteous, morally upstanding thing to do. Except that in this case, God sends an angel to intervene knowing that without that angelic intervention, this situation will be totally misread. And so he sends an angel to talk, and, and I believe this is at, right before the angel started talking. I don't think Joseph looked this dejected afterwards. But I, I think what the angel is saying to him is, Joseph, I know what this looks like to you, but you need to know that you are in a very special position. That this baby that's about to be born into your family, whom you will raise as your own child, is in fact no, no ordinary baby. He's in fact going to be the Son of God. It is the Holy Spirit who has made Mary pregnant. You know, to Joseph's credit, he had intended to exit the relationship, but to do so in a way that protected Mary's dignity. I think that speaks volumes about his character. I hope that all of us, when we're put in uncomfortable situations, that our first place to go would be to think about the dignity of the people around us, whom we might have a moral right to make a scathing response to, to simply say like Joseph, man, I'm pretty messed up by this, but I'm not going to try to scorch the earth under Mary's feet as I end this relationship. I don't know why she did what she did. I don't know who that guy is, but I'm going to let her exit graciously. I'm going to let her move on with her life, and I'm going to move on with mine. And I think what, what the angel is saying is, Joseph, you in this human situation handled it as graciously and as kindly as anyone could have, but you've got it wrong, brother. You've got to let her have this baby. You've got to stay true to Mary. You have to raise him as your own. And here's why. And in this one simple statement, this angel delivers to Joseph a statement we all have to remember this Christmas, that if you reduce what Jesus came to do into one statement, it is simply this, that he came to save people from their sins. It's that simple. He is for us so many things. He is an encourager, a friend, a supporter, a resourcer, a healer, a teacher, a leader, a great example to us. He's an inspirer. There are so many things. Remember Pastor Lockridge, his famous, um, I wonder if you know him, you know, that whole speech he did about all the different excellencies of Jesus. There are so many things you could say about Jesus But the one thing we all must be able to say at all times with clarity is this, that Jesus, above all things, is our Savior who saves us from our sins. And what is more, if we walk with Jesus, he won't only save us from the sins we've committed, he will save us from the sins committed against us. You know, there's this 1991 film starring Kevin Kline, Steve Martin, Danny Glover. It's called Grand Canyon. No one has ever heard of it or watched it. Raise your hand if you saw Grand Canyon. All right, five of us go out to lunch and talk about it. No one saw this movie, really, but um, in the movie, there's a scene where a wealthy suburbanite is driving through a rough part of town and his car breaks down. And right away, a a white car filled with neighborhood thugs sees him in distress, and like sharks in the water, they smell the blood, and they circle around, and they approach him, surround his car, start banging on his window, and basically what they're going to do is rip him off and jack him up. That's what happens when you're bleeding in the streets. 
He calls a tow truck because even though it was 1991, he had a cell phone because he was rich. So he called a tow truck, but he was waiting. And as he waits, these guys get him out of the car, and it's about to get bad. And just in time, Danny Glover, playing the role of the, the tow truck driver, zooms in, pulls in right in front, and he gets out, and he tries to defuse the situation. And just as it's escalating, he courageously pulls these thugs aside, and he delivers the following lecture. And here's what he says. Man, I'm not going to say it like him. I can't, but just read it for you. The world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe this ain't the way it's supposed to, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. That might be one of the most profound statements of the problem of sin I've heard anywhere. And in fact, I was reminded of that scene in a movie when I read a theological book by, by um, a guy named Professor Plantinga who wrote a book about sin, and this is how he started it. And the title of his book is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. I mean, how many times when you've messed up or when somebody has done wrong against you, have you just sat in a quiet moment after the anger faded and said, none of this is how it's supposed to be? People aren't supposed to treat each other like that. They're not supposed to say things like that or do things like that to their fellow human being. Family members are supposed to treat their family better. Friends are supposed to be more faithful. Spouses should be different to one another. None of this is how it's supposed to be. Have you ever just felt like that in the depths of your heart, overwhelmed by it? Nothing is right here. There's just darkness everywhere, and even if you want to clean it up, where do you even start in a world like this? It isn't the way it's supposed to be, is it? And I've noticed something about us collectively as a community, and not just us, I think just all of us who identify as followers of Jesus. I've noticed this about myself, that I'm pretty gracious when I find extenuating circumstances. I might be offended or put off at first by something and say, oh, why'd you do that? And then the person will email me or talk to me and they'll say, well, it was like this, I meant this. And as long as they can somehow work it out so that I hate them a little less, so that their, their perceived evil or malice was a little minimized, like, oh, so you were sick and you kind of meant this, and in your culture, this word means that. Okay, as long as I can find that little hook, that little anchor that says, Dave, calm down, let out that steam, release the pressure. As long as I could find that, I can say to that person, you know what, I'm still a little salty, but I'm going to move on. I forgive you. I've noticed that I move on very easily when I find something that lessens the pain of what they did. But there are also times, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there where there's no way to lessen it, even though they try to explain it, and maybe some of that is there, those mitigating circumstances don't lessen the pain for us, does it? What do we do when we just go, well, there it is then. That person doesn't think very highly of me. That person disdains me. 
That person hates me. And there's nothing they can say for me to lessen the blow of that, to make myself feel better about the world, to just say, well, at least it was because of this. or it was No, it's because they just look at me and they don't see someone they like. Where do you go with that? What do you say when you look at your parents who might have mistreated you and say, well, was it because you were busy, because you were tired, because you are dead? No, I was really happy and I had lots of time. I just don't like you, kid. I never wanted you. You reminded me of bad things. Where do you put something like that? I should have never married you in the first place. I should have told you this years ago. I never should have. Do you understand what we're trying to get at is Jesus and his salvation matters most when we're right up against those times in our lives where we don't want to be here anymore where it's so broken and there's nothing to soften the blow, and you look at it and you go, why is this place like this? Why are you like that? Why am I like this? And let's not just victimize ourselves. There are times when you look in the mirror and you hate who you see. You hate the weakness, the inability to overcome those things which have held your heart for so long, and you're like, why can't I get past this? Why is this still there? There is so much darkness, and yet, there's not like this hopelessness which needs to consume us. Because it's in the midst of this total darkness that light breaks into the world. Let's not call dimness darkness. Most of us will live in dimness and accept that. We'll minimize We'll soften, we'll sandpaper down until we can live in the world we find ourselves in. But there are some of us who are just too honest for that and are looking straight dead on at how black, how dark, how wicked and fallen everything is. And we can't take it anymore. And in that moment, especially when you're ready to give up, the hope of Christmas crashes through and says, now you're starting to understand why the gospel is such hope. Why it's such good news. Only a weak gospel can patch things up when we've done right by each other. But a divine gospel, a supernatural gospel, can help us move on and heal and be released into freedom, even when there's nothing to soften the blow. Even when what we've confronted is the pure malice and wickedness of a fallen world, even still, Jesus can break through that and give us hope. In that very opening video, we saw these words flash up, at least part of this passage. It says, Matthew 4, 16, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. It doesn't say people who were living or standing, but it says people who were sitting. And the idea is people in those days sat as a sign of mourning. When someone died in that culture, they would sit with the surviving relatives in silence for like seven days. I think it's a beautiful custom. You just sit with those who have lost someone, and no one talks. You just are together, and you sit, because there's nothing to say and nothing to do. You can't change this. It's just something we've got to get through. 
And there are people sitting in darkness. Things were done to them, taken from them that they can't reclaim in this life. It's just going to mark them for the rest of their life. We can't turn back the clock and change that event and keep it from happening. There are things we've done that we've never forgiven ourselves for. I've told you before about a young lady who wept. I say she was young, but she was in her mid-30s, and she wept like it was just yesterday when I spoke at a retreat at her church in another state. And I asked her why her heart was so troubled, and she recalled as though it was literally the day before how she aborted a child when she was 17 and had never released herself or sought the forgiveness of God. And then the message that was delivered at the retreat unlocked something. But the tears were not 18-year-old tears. They were tears from just yesterday. That's how fresh these things remain for us. We sit in our darkness, but the great hope of Christmas is that the people who were sitting in that darkness saw a great light. You know this time of year when the sun goes down at 2.30 in the afternoon? How do you feel about that? Does anybody love this time of year? A few people do. All right. A few people do. Um, More time for the zombies and the, the vampires to get out there and cause trouble, right? But listen, most people are deeply affected by the amount of dark we have to sit through in this time of year. And we have these longings for those halcyon days of summer where the sun doesn't set till like 9.30. Do you remember those days? You're actually, if you had a porch, you'd be sitting on it, sipping on a mint julep, thinking, man, the kids are out playing and it's 9 o'clock. Isn't this great? It's like that. It's like when the sun starts setting later and later. It starts rising earlier and earlier. And in this context of darkness that's just so oppressive and it just weighs down on you, light comes breaking through, it punches past. And all of a sudden there's this hope that maybe this Jesus who represents light in the midst of darkness can set me free from all of this. If that isn't the freedom and the liberty in which you're walking today, then I call you in Jesus' name to remember the good news of the gospel. And I want to just close out by giving you some pictures of the forgiveness that God gives when he forgives us. There's so much written in the New Testament about how when God forgives, we are truly, truly released. And there's much that could be said from the New Testament. But this morning, I want to wrap up with a couple really beautiful pictures from the Old Testament that point forward to the work of Jesus and remind us how different God is from us. How when he is wronged, when he's faced with evil and darkness, his heart is so different than ours. And as I read how his heart is, all I can think about is how much better this world would be to live in if all of us were more like him. Let me just read these two pictures for you. One of them comes from Psalm 103. It's a familiar passage, 
And I want to start in verse 8 and read through verse 12. But listen to the early verses of this text. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And I love this about God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And this week, I just had to sit with that thinking how not like God I am so much of the time. How really I treat people basically as I've been treated. There are moments when I shine and I feel God coursing through me and I'm like, oh, I had a good moment there. But most of the time, I have to fight this nature in me that wants to treat people as they've treated me. How comforting then that God, who could have been any way he chose to be, is like this. Doesn't that comfort you? Especially when you know you're the one who blew it. Doesn't it comfort you? And take, I just want you to take the foulest thing you can recall doing, which you haven't suppressed in your subconscious, which a therapist doesn't have to unlock. Think about the foulest thing you ever did in your life, which is still right there. Think about that. And think about how blessed we are that the God who hands out justice in the end, his heart is like this. And if this theological statement is not enough to compel us, King David goes on to say, let me give you a couple pictures of what it's like to be forgiven by God. And this is so important because some of us right now in this room are carrying around something that we don't know where to put. I don't know what to do with this. Where do I take this? Look at this amazing picture. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. You know, even with all of our modern technology, the stars, space, still remains pretty elusive to us. I've read novels about terraforming planets inhabiting our whole solar system, but the truth is our solar system is like moving from the front side of a flea's head to the back side of a flea's head with respect to the universe. It's nothing. And we haven't even done that yet for all the science we command. Imagine King David sitting on the highest place in his city, staring at the night sky thousands of years ago, how impossibly vast and far away the heavens seem to him. And he seizes on that image and says, I can't think of anything Bigger and further away, more, more difficult to grasp or understand than the heavens and their distance from the earth. And he says, when you are in the grips of God, especially at your worst moments, and did David know about worst moments? Have you ever arranged for the murder of someone because you wanted to sleep with his wife? I really hope no one raises their hand. I mean, he knew about low moments. He knew about shame and regret and self-loathing. And he says, when you're in that place and you can't even release yourself to come into the grips of God, a just, holy, almighty God, and to discover that his love is so vast, so great, so unconditional, it's like you trying to understand the heavens from where we stand. 
you will never fully get the love of God. Not in this lifetime. And when you say to someone who's trying to counsel you, yeah, 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 God loves me, I get it, but you don't get it. The minute you say something like that, you have revealed you don't get it at all. The love of God is so vast that whatever you did, you can't even forgive yourself for. Whatever was done to you so heavy, so dark, you can't put it anywhere. That very thing, the infinite love of God, will come to deal with. And if we could ever say, yes, God loves me, but I get it, but all we reveal is we have hardly begun to mind the depths of the love of God. And he gives us this other picture. As far as east is from the west. Now, those of you who took some world history, you know at this point in King David's era, they still thought the world was what? It was flat, right? They didn't, they didn't realize we were on a sphere, and if you separate east from west, you can have a head-on collision on the other side of the world. Stopping so snarky. He did not know that. What he is trying to say is, if I stand in the middle of the vast deserts in my realm, and I send one servant east and one servant west, those two will never see each other again. That's as separate as you can separate two things, is to send one going east and one going west. And I love that picture. It reminds me that when God forgives me, he takes my guilt, my shame, my culpability, and he sends it going one way. And then he sends me going another. And he says, when I look at you, I won't see that again. It will never follow you. It's not like a boomerang that you chuck and you turn around and hits you in the back of the head. It won't come back because he said it one way and he sent you another. And unlike us, when he releases you, he releases you forever. There is life after your worst failing. There is life after the worst thing you could imagine having done. Because when God sees your repentant heart and releases you, you are truly, fully, unconditionally released from all of it. Not convinced yet? Let me give you another picture. Look at Micah. Who reads Micah? Well, you're reading it now. Chapter 7, verse 18. Look at this beautiful, and again, Micah, like David, starts with a profound theological statement about the heart of God, and then he gives us two pictures. Where is another God like you, who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever, because, listen to this, how lucky are we our God is like this. You delight in showing unfailing love. Can I be honest? I think I, along with many others, delight when we have the moral high ground. Delight when we've caught someone in a lie. Oh, I knew it. You got nothing to say. Let me present the evidence and show you nothing you say can wiggle out of this one. You're caught. And there's something in most human beings that just delights in that feeling in some way. I've got you dead to rights. Maybe... Delight is the wrong word, but satisfaction might be a right word too. But the amazing thing about God is when he's caught us red-handed, dead to rights, the thing rising in his heart is, I can't wait 
to get back to unfailing love. I can't wait to restore you to me. I can't wait to hold you the way I held you once. Mindless, forgetful of what you did to get between us. Remembering what I felt the first day I saw you in the hospital, the first day I sat across the table from you and met you and heard your story, that day of optimism, drawnness, attraction, love, I can't wait to get back to that day. Because that's the day I felt closest to you. How blessed are we that our God is like this at the moment when we are most easily ejected from his presence. You guys, you with me? Somebody say amen. I don't know if it's just so familiar, it's numb to us, but man, I'm telling you, that is good news. Let me give you two of Micah's quick pictures, and then we'll finish. It says, once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet. Here's the picture that Hebrew phrase is trying to get across. Is taking something and grinding it under your boot and working at it until the whole thing is reduced to dust. See, I think what sometimes does happen, if we're honest about it, is we release people from the things they've done, we release ourselves from the things we've done, and then we take that sin and we make a figurine of it and put it on a shelf. Here's my little collection of all the foulness in my story. And you'll know, especially if you're married, isn't it amazing how, how crystal clear your spouse's memory can get? When catalog- they can't remember a shopping list to save their lives, but they remember everything. They're like, they turn into Rain Man all of a sudden. <laughs> I have a notebook. Just hold on. I have journaled all your malevolent behavior towards me. I have the memory of an elephant when I catalog your sins against me. Trust me. I don't need notes. It's all up here. It's because we release with air quotes. I release you. I want that to stick in your head. Because that's what we do. We say, I forgive you. And what would we do if he chopped off these four fingers? We'd have to mean it. <laughs> when we forgive, we immemorialize it. Like at the Lincoln Park Zoo, you put in 50 cents and you get a wax gorilla to remember your trip by. It's like we do that every time. And God says, what am I going to do with a little statuary of all of your past foulness against me? Why is that a collection I ever want to look at? Do you realize the greatest horror he has to look at is the replay of his own son's death for us? When he sees that, he does not need to go walking down his long closet lined with all the figurines of our past sins. He finds no joy, no delight in retelling those stories. He hates those stories. They are the, the monuments built to everything that went wrong in the world he made. And when he releases us, what he does is he takes that figurine and he smashes it to the ground and he tramples it until it's nothing but dust and says, do you remember what that was? Neither do I. It's nothing. He picks it up 
scatters it to the wind and says, that is what I do when I release you. It's purged. It's gone. Look at this last picture. You will throw them. Better translation would be hurl them into the depths of the ocean. Now again, we have to remember that David lived thousands of years ago. and When he went to the sea in one of his royal ships and at night peered over the edge and looked down into the depths of the ocean, I'm sure, just because I've done it, and I'm, I'm not a king, but I'm sure if I were a king, I would have taken some gobbler or something and just went, and just pondered how deep that thing sunk and how I will never get that thing back. With all our modern science, do you know how long it took us to find a ship the size of the Titanic in the ocean, even though we knew generally where it sank? (laughs) 73 years we looked for that thing, and it was called the Titanic. Not the needle, not the HMS needle in a haystack. It was the Titanic, the largest ocean-going vessel of its day. 73 years we sought after that thing until we finally found it. For King David, when he pictured God hurling his sin into the depths of the sea, he could not picture an analogy of more lostness, more irrecoverability than that. It is gone forever never to be brought again, never to be raised to view again. It was a place you threw things when you never intended to retrieve it for the rest of your life. That is how God releases us when we ask him to do so. When he sees contrition and repentance in our hearts, the forgiveness is so real and so permanent. Isn't it good news to know that whatever you're carrying around, because of who we celebrate at Christmas, you can let that thing go. And when he takes it from you, he won't put it in his museum. I always picture those in a museum of the grotesque heart of Dave somewhere in heaven. And they give tours. Look at this. And this dude's one of the pastors down there. Look at him. I'm so glad that room doesn't exist. Because I don't think I ever want to see that again. I hope that when we die and find ourselves in heaven, he has given us selective amnesia so that I never, ever have to do that again. That I will have the mind that God has the power to actually forget everything and move forward into joy. Don't you want that for yourself? Aren't you so grateful that it's available at all? That's who we celebrate. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Above every other gift that Jesus brings to us, that gift is the greatest. That whatever you're carrying around, you can let go of, Because he makes that possible for us. And when God releases, he releases forever. Let me conclude by saying these words, echoing the Apostle Paul. 
what better way to honor Jesus? What better way to express our gratitude for this gospel than to ask God to help us live by these words ourselves? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What a beautiful church. What beautiful families. What a beautiful world this could become if having received the forgiveness of Almighty God, we then could release others and move forward into joy. That's not easy, but it's simple, isn't it? And the place to start, if you find you continue to pick up figurines along the way, the place to start is back in the manger, which foreshadowed the cross. And remember that he came to forgive us of our sins, to release us, that we also would learn to release one another. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.